Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello, my name is C. Lee McInnes. I am a poet, short story writer, and instructor of English at Jackson State University. And on behalf of the Mississippi Book Festival, I am so very pleased to be interviewing Dr. Nancy Bristow, professor of history at the University of Puget Sound, where she is also a founding member of the African-American Studies Program. Today, we will discuss her very timely and important book, Steeped in the Blood of Racism, Black Power, Law and Order, and the 1970 Shootings at Jackson State University for the Mississippi Book Festival. Dr. Bristos, thank you so much for being with us today. You know it is an honor and a privilege. So let's jump right into it. And what I want to know is, why were you drawn to tell this story? Well, I've been teaching African-American history for 30 years. And one of the themes that is so prominent if one studies this history is the persistence of white supremacist violence from the beginning right up to the present day. This is a a persistent problem, indeed crisis uh, in American history. And so it seemed like a very important story. And I was imagining sort of larger work that was going to engage with police and state violence in a range of contexts. And once I began looking at the story of Jackson State, it became clear that this was one that needed its own focused history because it is such an important window into a historical moment. It tells us so much about the ways in which in the midst of the Black Power era, Uh, The state needs new ways to justify ongoing violence against Black people, and we see it enacted horrifically in this example. And honestly, the other thing is that I think it's a a story that's been so misunderstood, Uh, and and I myself was guilty of that misunderstanding. And so as soon as I realized what I was really seeing, uh, it just seemed like a project um, that I could certainly sink myself into. So one, one of the key points, not just telling the story that needs to be told, is one of the key points that, that I really enjoy about reading the book is just the amount of research that you engage, right? It's, it's one of those texts that, you know, as, as writers, we hope that our texts can be helpful in many ways. And I really think your text can be helpful in how does one research a difficult topic. So could you discuss some of the types of research that were requir- required to complete your book? And I have to say, that was one of the things that, that made this project both difficult and easy. There were so many sources available to me. It was unbelievable. I was really stunned that Jackson State College, for instance, now Jackson State University, had begun collecting materials immediately. So everything from all the telegrams to the president uh, that he received, letters to the university, those were all saved. So the first place is this Gibbs Green collection of rich sort of local sources connected to the Jackson State story itself. But then you have the state archives, which is filled with newspapers from around the South, as well as the local newspapers, really important for understanding both the white community and the black community's perspectives on what was taking place. Then you have all of these investigative and legal cases. So you have both the mayor has a biracial committee that investigates the shooting in its immediate aftermath, their records are available. The President's Commission on Campus Unrest, which was investigating shootings on campuses nationwide, did extraordinary legwork on this case. So there are FBI records and PCCU uh, interview records available. And then there's both the Hines County and the federal grand juries, and ultimately a civil trial with itself 3,000 pages of trial testimony. But maybe the most important research, I think, for me in some ways... um, won't say the most important, but a vital 
part of the research was also my opportunity to talk to some 30 plus people in the state of Mississippi uh, and in the South more generally about their experiences as students at Jackson State, as administrators, as faculty members, as people from the community and both people from that time and people today. And that really helped give me a, a deeper uh, and more humane and, and humanity filled understanding uh, of what was taking place yeah. all the years ago. Definitely. That's, that's right where I want to go. So could you talk a little bit about maybe two or three of those specific oral histories and, and, and how those oral histories, one, impacted you and also how did they work to shape the text? Yeah. And it, it's hard to even know where to start, but the first person who always pops into my mind is Constance Slaughter Harvey. At the time, she was Connie Slaughter, and she was the lead attorney initially for the student victims uh, and took the case to court. Uh, the civil suit that began in 1972. And she was really influential for me because the first time I met her, she challenged me. I wasn't trying to interview her. She called me out into the hallway and basically said, so just what is it you're doing? <laughs> and I said, well, here's what I think I'm doing. And I know that I need to walk very carefully. Let me show you some of my work. I'd love to have a chance to sit down and talk with you because I know how instrumental you were to this case. And we developed a, a wonderful relationship and she has become a guide and a mentor for me. And she really helped me know from the very beginning that this was a story that needed to be done well. Right. There was no messing around with this story. And then alternatively, she also had such a deep and rich understanding of what took place uh, and of the, the meaning that this held for the victims. Uh, so for me, uh, Constance Slaughter Harvey will always be uh, truly a, a model for me of the kind of integrity that a person needs to have if they're going to do racial justice work. Um, what about uh, some of the students, maybe? Uh, yeah. And, and, and you know that, I mean, again, I could go on and on, um, but I immediately think uh, of Vernon Weekly, who was willing to give me an hours-long interview at what used to be called the Penguin right there across the street <laughs> from Jackson State. and just That's how dogs in the world. Yeah, exactly. And filled me in on what it had been like to be there, the setting before the shooting happened, that they were just hanging out. And then the horror of those those 28 seconds and the meaning that it's held for him really um, through the rest of his life. Um, I just and I'm so grateful for each of the people who let me talk with them. For me, it's like it's such a gift. You can't you can't measure that kind of gift. It's immeasurable. Uh, and yet also so fundamentally important and something that I will always feel grateful for. What do you, what do you think was one of the most difficult parts of the research or the, or the most difficult hurdle you had to cross? And you've gone right to it, which is in fact, again, in some ways, those oral histories, not because I didn't, I don't say enjoy, but, you know, really, uh, you know, these were really important experiences for me that I was so grateful to have. I was glad to be in the room every time, but I also knew that in asking the kinds of questions I was, I was making people go back to something that was very difficult in their lives that often had held great grief or great disappointment, great anger. Um, and so asking people to go back to those times, I think of Maddie Hull, one of James Earl Green's sisters, who invited me into her home and told me all about how awful it had been for her and her siblings and her mother. And to know that I had, in a sense, asked her to tell these stories one more time was difficult and yet I never got the sense that anybody regretted telling their story or was unwilling to tell their story. So the other part that was really hard is there was just so much material and, and having to wade through so much to try to figure out really exactly what had taken place. 
So did you get to talk to the, uh, the widow of, of, of uh, Philip Lafayette Gibbs? You know, I did not have that opportunity, though I have had a chance more recently here to hear her speak. She spoke at the 50th anniversary event on campus, and I would have had a chance to meet her then. But yes, Dale Gibbs is a remarkable woman uh, who has raised two, it uh, sounds like two remarkable sons. Uh, she was pregnant at the time Philip was murdered. Right. Uh, with her second son, as you may know. Uh, but so, no, I didn't have a chance to speak with her but uh, have really appreciated the opportunity to learn from her in, in the months since, um, since actually I had finished my project. So uh, there's a lot of misinformation about the, the event. And so the question for a researcher is, how does one decipher or navigate the large amounts of misinformation about the, about the event, about the shooting and about the aftermath and the trial? And in some ways, it's not different from any other history. We always have to read our sources, quote, against the grain, right? Every source has an intention. We're trying to tell our audience something, whether we're being interviewed or writing a newspaper article or actually testifying in a trial. We always have, in a sense, an agenda. Uh, we have a, an intended meaning, but there's always something else going on. And so that reading against the grain, putting things in their context, who's speaking, why are they speaking, what context are they speaking, what was their relationship to the events? And over all of it is, of course, having to wade through, pull apart um, the shadow of the, the veil of white supremacy. Uh, so always having to work against that powerful force that ran through so much of the sources. But again, that's what historians do for a living. Um, and so it was a, a difficult challenge, but one um, that always sits at the center of, of historical work. Can you talk about maybe one or two, but even one, one of the things that a piece of misinformation or things that people get wrong that you, you are able to correct in your research? Where would I start? Uh, I think the most obvious that there could have been any reason the police should have opened fire that night. There is no explanation that, that warrants what took place that night. Right. Every possible explanation that has been given has been both disproven and in turn, even the kinds of misinformation like, oh, there was a sniper uh, up in the dorm. Well, A, there wasn't a sniper up in the dorm. To be very clear, there was no sniper in the dorm. The police's, police lives were not in danger at that moment. But even if they, if there had been a sniper, police do not get to just open fire on a crowd willy-nilly. Right. Um, that's absolutely against all protocol. Right. So I think the most important thing to take away from my research is this was an unjustified, inexcusable, um, white supremacist motivated mm -hmm. murder of young yeah. people. Yeah. And when, and when you think about some of that misinformation, right, and, and, and what do you think about the notion of the findings that they, they weren't just bullets at the dome, right? They were almost firing at a 360 degree angle. And so what does that tell you about what, what more we need to know about the event? Well, certainly it tells us, one, that this set of officers were completely unprepared to engage with a large group of people. They had no, even if they'd been sent in and felt there was a crowd that needed control, which was simply not true at Alexander Hall, they were not trained for that. They entered the circumstances with a preconception of who these young people were. They were looking at everything through a white supremacist lens and saw dangerous criminals where what was going on were young college kids enjoying a hot Mississippi evening. Um, as I think it was Vernon Weekly who even said, you know, I was down at Alexander Hall because that's where the girls were. That's where right. the dancers was. People were hanging out, listening to music and having a nice time. 
So again, they were overreacting, they were underprepared, they were armed to the teeth, they brought a tank with them, for heaven's mm-hmm. sakes, which they often, I know, took to Lynch Street. Yep. Um, and Same so Thompson tank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, not only do they shoot where they suggest there could have been a sniper, but they go up and down the dormitory and 360 degrees around. There is no justification for that kind of action. And that's why I know some people believe that this was a planned attack. Uh, Whether some officers had it planned, whether everyone knew it was a plan, I never found evidence for that. And yet their actions suggest that that could have been a possibility. And I can see why people could reach that conclusion. Mm-hmm. I like when you talk about, you know, Weekly saying he was there because the girls were there. I remember talking to Eddie Jean Carden and she was, she was telling me what she was doing that night. So along that line, can you tell me one or two stories that when you were interviewing folk, that just kind of humanized the whole event for you? Mm. The event, the shooting itself or the broader story? The, the broader story. Yeah. Eddie Jean Carr, um, it certainly comes to mind immediately for me, Eddie G. McDonald. Um, she talked about having been in her dorm room and her roommate was Philip Gibbs' sister, Mary Gibbs. And they were just hanging out and you can see exactly how it would work. The young women were supposed to be inside the dormitory. So they're hanging out the window messing right. around with Philip, right? And they're jawing back and forth and teasing him. And, you know, you can feel the sort of levity of the evening. Um, And then she says, and then a bottle crashed and all hell, everything broke loose. Right, right. And then she goes on to talk about just how awful it was to be there and to see and to hear what was taking place. I mean, the level of trauma for those young people is is unimaginable to me, having not myself um, lived through anything like that. Um, So her story immediately comes to mind. Um, the other um, story that comes to mind immediately for me um, is is the story. Um, okay, give me a minute. I'm going to have to pause for a moment. No, go ahead. <laughs> We're going to. I'm going to start this answer again in just a second because I'm blanking on what was Spoonie's full name. I'm, I'm so used to thinking of him as Spoonie. Spoonie, yeah. Oh, I wish we had Lab Baker. <laughs> oh no, I got it right here. I just need a second. Okay. Um, I'm just blanking completely. That's so humiliating. No, no, no. Um, Take your time. But you know how memory works. Um, and I know they're going to edit this thing, right? So we have a second here. Let me just look it up. The end of the trial, they say the, the names are all right there. Oh, it's been, right. I've been trying to grab it in my head this whole time, and I couldn't get there. There it is. Um, yeah, Leroy Kenter Jr. Yeah. Um, so let me start over. Another story that just was so powerful for me was Leroy Kenter, um, who went by Spoonie at the time. His story Um, because he too had just dropped off a woman, Belinda, who would be his wife later on. Um, And so again, telling the sort of what a nice evening they'd had, uh, dropped her off. He's still hanging out and sort of his sister-in-law is there, I think. And she says, you know, y'all, you got to head on home. This looks like, you know, some trouble could happen. And, And sure enough, trouble did happen. And he talks about sprinting to try to get around the edge of the building and that a bullet caught him before he could get around to the, the edge of the building. Mm. And of course he had his femur shattered and would wow. spend, you know, weeks in the hospital and then would go home um, to live in a living room, of course, without air conditioning in a one bedroom shotgun house, um, living with family, with, with relatives. He's in the living room in a, in a half body cast. Mm. And the horror of what that meant, he said, you know, I tried to go back to college after that, but you know, I couldn't, I just my mind wasn't there. I couldn't do it right okay. then. And the kind right. of just horrific physical and psychic 
harm that was done to that young man. Uh, and then how gracious and kind he was to, again, invite me into his home to tell what was a horrific story. Yeah. And I think that story, I think that story in particular is important because we, 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 I think we kind of not realize how courageous it was for those students to return in the fall, right? How courageous it was. In fact, how courageous it was for students to go and stand around the building the day after because they knew the state was going to try to clean up the evidence. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I agree that the courage of these young people from the very beginning, the fact that they were willing not, they didn't run away when the police marched up Lynch Street because Alexander Hall was theirs and they, right. they stayed standing there. They got off the street. They did what they were told uh, in a sense that they hadn't done anything um, that would have suggested that they were dangerous to the police, but it was courageous that they stood there um, and that they immediately took care of the victims. Uh, the police did not help out. Um, right. The National Guard would eventually assist, but neither the Mississippi Highway Safety Patrol nor the Jackson Police Department stepped in. But those young people, they didn't run away. They immediately went to tend to the wounded uh, and to see that what they could do for one another. And then they stayed right there all night. They refused to go back into the dorm. The president urged them at first to return. And they said, why? He said, you know, you'll be safer. And they were like, they just shot, you know, five of us got hit inside the dorm. We are right. not going inside Dr. Peoples. Right. And they stayed out there all night together, helping one another in a sense through the grief to try to sort of not come to terms, not to solve the grief, but to be in it together. Right. To acknowledge what had happened uh, and to be with other people who would understand and who could comfort them. Um, and then, and then, and then they stand there and protect that evidence day right. after day after day for me. And they knew exactly why they said when the workers first came to remove it, they've come, they're taking these scars away. Mm -hmm. They knew that the memory of what had just taken place was going to be removed, was going to be obliterated if they weren't there to protect that evidence. And in a sense to protect that memory, Exactly. And for me, they're, they're, it's so heroic and so courageous because remember, we're talking about a site where two kids had just been killed and 12 mm -hmm. others had been wounded when police opened fire for no reason. Yeah. And so that they stayed there, I agree, is the height of courage and the height of an awareness of the importance of what had happened and the capacity that they had um, to share their story with their community and with the country, and ultimately with those of us who would come later. Right, right. And, and I like the fact that you, you contextualize the shooting in the matrix of the civil rights movement. So could you talk a little bit about the importance of making sure that we contextualize this, this, this event, the JSU, 1970 JSU shooting, in the context of the civil rights movement? I can, and I thank you so much. These are just wonderful questions. Um, it's so important that it be contextualized in the civil rights movement, because if you don't, you'll get the story wrong. Um, this was one part of an arc of history that is centuries long. Um, it is one part of um, this history of violence against black people in the United States. If you simply lift it out of May 1970, it's misunderstood to have been an issue around campus unrest and police were opening fire on students all over the country. 
instead it really is something else. It was a part of African-American history and the story in which it belongs is this centuries long assault on African-American life, on African-American aspiration, on African-American college campuses in a sense. Remembering of course the police forces have their origins in slave patrols. This is a history that reaches all the way back to slavery. And so you have to see that this violence is not violence just against students, it's violence against black students. And once you put it in that context, then you can really see the ways in which this is very informative about a moment in the history of the repression of black citizenry and the ways that this new rhetoric of law and order that came in first with um, uh, with the presidential candidate Barry Goldwater, but much more strongly than with Richard Nixon, the election of 1968, language that will criminalize um, the black community, essentially, Law and order. Racially coded, racially coded language where you can talk about crime when you're really saying we need to repress black people. Right. Uh, so once you put this story in the long arc of black history and then also in the context of 1970, I think then you can understand what was actually taking place. Hey, you always made me think about how this is just after the Kerner Commission report, right? So the Kerner Commission is saying you need to you need to uh, fund education, right? You, you you need to you know create more equal communities across, and of course America's response to its own because I tell people the Kerner Commission was America's report. It wasn't black people's report. It was the, the and what does America do? It it does the exact opposite by starting building more prisons and having even more oppressive law enforcement. See, I think you're right on on the head with that. Yeah, in fact, and the militarizing of the police, right, is underway just at this historical moment as well. So yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. That's what's taking place. And and we have to remember, too, this isn't the first time that students had been shot in the United States, right? right? Um, we the, the Orangeburg Massacre on the campus right. of South Carolina, right, three black students and something like 27 or 30 black students had been shot by police two years earlier, right. um, but no one had paid any attention outside of the black community. Mm-hmm. And there had been repeated um, instances of police violence against black people in general over the course of the latter years of the 1960s. So this very much fits in with uh, a, a dynamic that's taking place across the country uh, and of which this is is shamefully just one chapter. And I think that that gets us uh, directly to two individuals that 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 are uh, harmed or were murdered and harmed before this, Ben Brown and Mamie Ballard. And so could you talk a little bit about how your research kind of posits both the Ben Brown murder and the, the Mamie Ballard assault, right, both in the area of Jackson State to, to the 1970 shooting? Yeah, that's so important because in 1964, Mamie Ballard, uh, a student at Jackson State, is trying to cross the street. Um, Her dorm is on one side of Lynch Street, uh, and I think she's headed to the basketball game on the other side. And she, uh, one car stops to let her pass, and a second car smacks right into her. Right. Um, She is injured. She goes to the hospital with a badly broken leg. But students surround the automobile. Uh, And the automobile is not able to leave. And students, in fact, decide that later that night, they will occupy Lynch Street, Mm -hmm. that they will take over the street, in a sense, claiming that space as their own. Mm -hmm. And it's a really important moment because the way the white community will understand what has taken place is they'll talk about the students as if they're somehow responsible, they're the criminals here. And what they're doing is suggesting we need safety when we cross this street. 
This is a dangerous site that runs through the middle of our campus. We want to claim it as our own where we can be safe and be going and coming from class to dorms to games to cafeteria. In 1964, they make that statement when Mamie Ballard is struck. She's not the only one who was injured. It's just that hers were physical injuries. But remember that racial epithets had been thrown from those cars for years and that students' lives were endangered every day as people raced through that campus inappropriately. Um, Then in 1967, right, you have another incident involving students and other local young people and motorists, because those white motorists are racing through. You can think about the layout of the city. White motorists are going from the western suburbs into town and then back home from jobs, driving too fast through the middle of campus. Uh, And there's a police chase ultimately that involves uh, an African-American student who runs into campus, and it leads to some disorder, I guess you could call it, on Lynch Street. Um, And the students, again, decide that they actually want to kind of lay claim to that space. Now, again, I'm not talking about a riot. I'm talking about students suggesting that they don't want the police interfering or coming onto their campus because the police are a danger to them. And so they resist having police come to campus. There's a couple of nights of this. uh, The police have barricades up. They blocked off Lynch Street. And on the at night, you know, there is some rock throwing going on. Some students and other young people do run sort of towards the barricades. But when I'm talking about towards the barricades, I mean, they're 100 yards away. They're 200 yards away. I mean, there's no danger here for law enforcement. Law enforcement opens fire. And Ben Brown, a local civil rights activist, is dead. Uh, He was running away from where the police were at the time he was shot, as were the other students. And he was, in fact, not even involved in the demonstration that was taking place. He was looking for dinner uh, with a friend. Um, but he was murdered also right there on Lynch Street, just a couple blocks off the campus. And again, this was a moment in which students were simply trying to say, in a city, a state, and on a campus where it was relatively risky to protest, they were nevertheless trying to raise their voices for their own sort of safety and protection on their campus. Mm-hmm. Um, things that we would see as entirely reasonable in 2020, I hope. Right, right. And, and it was what's interesting is that all this raises the, the notion of the innate uh, politicizing of what an HBCU is, right? I, I think about the fact that, right, before it was Jackson State College, it was Natchez Seminary. So it moves from Natchez, Mississippi to Jackson, but it's in a different location where now Millsaps, right, the Millsaps majors, right, founded by Major Millsaps, a major in the Confederate Army. They are forced to leave that area of Jackson because the whites are expanding, right? right. So one, we want you out of the city. So then we move you. So where now Jackson State sits now was not originally in the city, right? So we move you out the city, but then white expansion happens again with the combination of we moved you out of the city and then you became profitable on your own. No, we're not going to let you have those taxes for yourself. So then we re-annex you, right? So the whole notion of the HBCU is this kind of political pun, right, to always control. And so I guess my question is, do you see that play out in this shooting or, or a more specific question is through your research are you able to tell whether or not Jackson State College was attacked because it became a threat to the white college structure? I think absolutely yes. Um, it's very clear by 1967 when you think about the way the campus is changing first of all it is an evolving campus. It is the late 1960s black power rhetoric is out and you can see it if you look at the student newspaper for instance and you can see 
the rise of articles raising questions about the war in Vietnam, raising questions about black rights, starting to write poetry, describing that black is beautiful and that we have a right to be ourselves and we have a heritage and a tradition that we should be proud. These voices are really emerging on campus. Students are beginning to wear their hair natural. Um, clothing is shifting. So you can see on sort of a cultural level, the campus itself, I mean, its infrastructure is changing as well. President Peoples will found in 1968, the Institute for the Study of the History, Life and Culture of Black People with Margaret Walker as its first uh, director, what's now the Margaret Walker Center. So there's really an attentiveness to black life on that campus by 1970 not just students, but faculty and even the administration has shifted with the arrival of Dr. Peoples in 1967. And so you can see very clearly the sort of overreaction to anything that happens near the campus, really starting with Mamie Ballard back in 1964. You can go back even earlier to 1961 when students are involved um, with the Two Blue Nine activities. Right. Um, all the way through the decade, you can read what the police say about the campus or what the newspaper, the white newspapers in town say about the campus and how threatening they seem to describe the campus mm -hmm. as if it is criminal to seek an education, to become right. a better self, to grow and express yourselves. All those things we associate with education, those are seen as a tremendous threat to the white community um, and so it, it's very clear to me that this was um, a shooting that was motivated absolutely by white supremacy and that the police approached the campus with the sense that this was a dangerous place, a place that needed to be kept under control and students who were acting, quote, out of their place. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the Tougaloo Nine, and one of the things that I've always, you know, pondered is, you know, Tougaloo being private had a much longer and much more intense civil rights uh, legacy, right? And, and I think it's difficult, I think, particularly people who, you know, don't understand segregation and don't understand how life was, that Jackson State was, for the most part, was a really kind of middle class, really conservative, you know, uh, school where, you know, upwardly mobile black people sent their children. And so I guess I wonder, under that, looking at that history, right, with Tougaloo being a much more uh, you know, uh, engaged, right? And, 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 and I guess that's, you know, relative to how we want to define much more, but it definitely had the, the name of being, right, the much more engaged. The question I ask is that based on your research, right, uh, one, what does it say that the state, the city will march upon what was basically known as a conservative institution, right? Because you talk about right that that what it really means is that to want to be an educated black person was a threat to white supremacy. Like, did you did you see that in talking to people and through your research? I think that's absolutely right. I actually will will challenge just a little bit to that narrative, and I think you were doing the same thing. This narrative that only Tougaloo was active and Jackson State was passive. Right. Again, remembering Jackson State as an institution in Mississippi as a public institution. Right, had an all-white board of trustees that it had to answer to. Right. And so there was tremendous repression of student activism. So those students who were active in 1961 in supporting the Tougaloo Nine were expelled from school. Right. They lost their opportunity to go to school. Many of the students who went to Jackson State were not from the middle class. Many of the people I interviewed were actually the children of sharecroppers who were the first in their family to go to college and who went there knowing that the whole family was counting on them. Right. They were not there to get themselves in trouble. They were there to get an education and help their family emerge out of sharecropping if it was all possible to help their siblings get to go to college. So a lot of pressure on the students that were at Jackson State 
to stay out of trouble and very clear um, public rulings, uh, whether it is expulsions or the kinds of rules that the Board of Trustees was putting in place, um, that to step even a hint um, out of you know, the straight and narrow to take on any kind of protest or black consciousness organizing uh, was to put your own education at risk. So I think of the students literally going into the street after Mamie Ballard is hit by a car, that's not only courageous, but that's, that's protest and that's activism. Right. Activism of a different sort in a different context. Now that said, I agree with you 100% that here is a campus that is actually not really much of a threat in the context of May 1970, remembering right. that right, uh, one-fifth of American colleges won't finish their semester because things are really... Um, right. Right. This is a very wild moment in American uh, higher education, let's say, with the national student strike. So to see what was going on at Jackson State as somehow dangerous or threatening to the city or to the white community takes a wild stretch of the imagination. Right. But unfortunately, a stretch that white supremacy facilitated pretty easily. So I always give, uh, you know, kudos and props to Kent State because they've always done a great job of including Jackson State in that celebration, right? Because they understood that, you know, Kent State and then South Carolina State, like they're not going to get the kind of publicity that a Kent State is going to get, you know, so I always give them props to that. But that being said, right, why, why do you think in looking at your research that more people know about the Kent State shooting? We know the obvious, but are there any other kinds of layers other than the obvious why people know more about the Kent State shooting than say the Jackson State shooting. And I am going to go to the obvious first, just to say it out loud. It's because the students at Jackson State are black. Right. Um, and that's why it's so important to, to mention the Orangeburg shootings, that Kent State really captures the nation's attention um, on May 4th, 1970. I can think of my own white family and how stunned we were by it. I'd never heard of the Orangeburg massacre myself. Um, and again, so that the idea that this was about race and that that's also why it was forgotten is really important to say out loud. In turn, I think there are some things operating that facilitate that. One is that the law and order narrative, that describing of these students as criminal, um, mm -hmm. the ways in which uh, the legal system um, pre prevents justice for these young people, uh, allows it to become a kind of throwaway story for those who are more conservative on issues of race, for, white suprem for people who are proudly white supremacists, let's say. But I think white liberals have to, to look at themselves as well. Many places, not those at Kent State, but many others across the country immediately saw Jackson State as another Kent State, right? right. One student newspaper um, simply crosses out uh, Kent State and writes Jackson State uh, right. in their headline. Right. Uh, I think it's Time Magazine refers to it as Kent State 2. Wow. As soon as you do that, it's just like Kent State, then you don't need the story any longer. Right. And so you can look at sort of commemorative articles in things like the Chronicle of Higher Education. And a few years out, pretty soon, Jackson State's in a sidebar of, quote, others who died. You don't need everybody who died. Right. You can just work right. with the four. And again, this is not to um, understate the horror of what happened at Kent State. In fact, I've gotten to know some of the folks from Kent State very well, and they've been very supportive of my research and very supportive of the notion that, that what happened at Jackson State was not the same thing. Right. At the same time, anxious to have that kind of camaraderie and that sense of, of bond because they too had suffered through something horrific that involved police shooting young people. Um, that you can both have that bond and recognize the difference between the two events. 
I think the folks at Kent State have done that well. The folks at Jackson State have done that well. I think a lot of other young, uh, excuse me, white liberals have had a harder time with that. Yeah, yeah. And I, before I go to my next question, I always have to give a shout out to Dr. Gene Jughead Young, yeah. uh, who for years, he was there that night. He's prominent in Dr. People's book and Dr. People's discussing that night. And, and, and Dr. Gene Jughead, Jughead Young was, again, a professor, a student at Jackson State, professor at Jackson State. And he kept their story alive. So by the time I got there, my father, who was a student there in 1970, and when he looked at me and he said, you know, called your daddy? I said, yes, Dr. Young. He said, well, you know about the story, right? I said, well, yes. Sir. He said, well, let me tell you some more about the story, right? And so it was professors like that, like you said, who were, you know, not saying there wasn't many of them, but it could have been many more. And I always have to give him a lot of credit for being one of those people who kind of kept that story alive. And now, you know, giving credit to Dr. Rodney Luckett, for doing more with the Margaret Walker Alexander Center to keep it going even more. Uh, with that said, how do you connect the 1970 JSU shooting to the current killings of unarmed African-Americans by law enforcement today? I mean, it's so awful because they, 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 it feels like we're seeing the same thing happen 50 years later. Right. In, in some ways, it, they, they're not the same thing, and yet they are so similar. Um, to be heartbreaking for me. I mean, both are part of the long arc of this history of the state's use of violence to contain Black life. I mean, how horrific that in the midst of COVID-19, when people are saying, I can't breathe, right, we then have to listen to someone murdered, Mm. right? George Floyd can't breathe. That this, this containment of Black life is, is not just in the police shootings, it's in the carceral state, it's in the failure of the healthcare system. But these shootings and, and the George Floyd murder are so similar because they are part of this long effort to, to strangle black life, if you want to put it in, in the most direct terms. They both show the continued disregard for black life. They show the continued militarization of policing in this country, in particular in communities of color. And I think maybe the most important thing I want to say is that the same kind of trauma is being meted out. People are again suffering. It is so reminiscent of the ways in which lynching could terrorize entire communities. The murder of George Floyd didn't just terrorize him or his family or his city. It terrorized the entire country, right? It has sickened everyone, um, with regard for the well-being of black people, but especially, of course, it has terrorized the black community, just as the shootings at Jackson State did, and just as lynching has. And and, and that gets us to, let's talk a little bit about the trial and some of the most, you know, the things that you found in your research about the trial and, and what you hope people get from your book about the trial after the shooting. And, and and to be clear, because we there were, there were, there, there was a there was a an, a trial, but then there was also a, 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 a hearing on right. So you had the, the federal hearings, right? Of, you know, and then you had the, the actual civil trial. And so just t- you know, talking about all those different things that were happening. Yeah. So there's both a, both a, a Hines County grand jury and a federal grand jury. Um, the attorney general actually visits Jackson and promises that his department will do everything in its power to make sure that justice is done in this case. And then the federal grand jury, um, uh, the head of the grand jury is appointed, and it's this raving racist. 
Um, it's one of it's the man who helped get off uh, many of the people who we now know were responsible for the murder of the three civil rights workers uh, during Freedom Summer, for instance. He had used the N word from the bench. Um, in describing civil rights activists. I mean, this guy was horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the, he resides over the federal grand jury. And so of course there's no indictment there. And the county grand jury borrows from his charges to the jury uh, in their own charges. And so again, uh, no indictments against law enforcement, which leaves the only option um, for the victims of the shootings uh, to be a civil suit, um, which three of the students uh, Twain Davis, Twain Davis Whitehead, um, uh, Lee, uh, Leroy Kenter, and um, Vernon Weekly, as well as the families of the two who were killed, um, um, Philip La- excuse me, Philip, the two who were murdered, Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green. Um, the only option then is to file a civil suit. And from the very beginning, Constance Slaughter, now Constance Slaughter Harvey, Um, was on the campus talking with the students, helping them organize, think about the lawsuit, getting them organized. Eventually, she would be joined by a New York law firm. There would be tensions with that New York law firm, make no mistake. Um, And Connie would eventually be largely silenced in the courtroom um, because of tension with uh, one of the partners of that law firm, something that I think really harmed harmed, um, the case. That said, they did an amazing job preparing for the trial, Um, with Connie's leadership and that of several other people uh, and prepared an extraordinarily strong case against the state, the city and law enforcement. Unfortunately, um, the jury they faced, um, all white, uh, they went in with white supremacy uh, in full force and um, the defense attorneys were able then to manipulate the sort of white supremacist stereotypes about African-Americans to paint the young people um, who had been assaulted as criminals. And to read that trial testimony is absolutely heartbreaking. The way that these kids were treated on the stand, the kinds of questions they were asked about what they'd been doing that evening, um, bringing up things like what was the blood alcohol level of Philip Lafayette Gibbs, like that has some relevance to this trial. Um, and in the end, um, humiliating, in fact, James Earl Green's mother on the stand, asking her completely inappropriate questions. Um, and it takes them very little time uh, to find for the defendants, for the, for the um, police officers who had, who had fired and for the leadership um, who had allowed that to happen. It's a really horrific case. If you want to study in how white supremacy can destroy the courtroom, Um, that trial transcript is worth a read. There's 3000 pages of it. um, And it it is, is vital for understanding the way our criminal justice system can be misused and can, instead of actually allowing justice to be done, can cause further injury in a sense uh, to the victims of a crime. And that's exactly what took place. And I know attorney Slaughter Harvey talked about also the psychological damage on her on, right. on those three students and just on the Jackson State community and the black community at large, right? that, that not guilty verdict and how it really psychologically damaged uh, a movement toward greater equality. Exactly right. Imagine the time and effort that went into that. And they knew that they would probably lose in the first trial because it would be a local trial, right? It was happening uh, in Mississippi. The hope was that on appeal, they could be victorious. And in fact, they were. 
Right. But there were no damages right. because they were all covered by sovereign immunity. And so when they then tried to take it to the Supreme Court, they were unable to get the court to hear the case. Right. And so to know that they had proven the truth, they had been told that they were right, mm -hmm. but nothing we can do about it. Right. So no apology, no damages, um, no restitution of any form um, through that trial. The cost of that for the individuals who pursued it in terms of what you can believe in, how you can feel about the place you live and the community around you. I can't imagine the kind of, of, of devastating damage that that wielded. But yes, people have, have shared with me that it was indeed terribly damaging. And, and what's interesting is that that kind of parallels, you know, the, the Ayers case starts four years after the shooting. So you have the Jeju shooting in 1970. You have Jake Ayers filing the Ayers case lawsuit about the inequitable funding of HBCUs. And essentially the same thing happens, right? It gets to the Supreme Court twice. Alvin Chambers is able to win at the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court essentially says, hey, you're right, but it's a state matter. We're going to remand it to the state and you get this bogus settlement. And I, and I like to be clear, I'm one of those people who think it was a bogus settlement. There are some people who think it was a good settlement. I tell people, just go read, as you say, read the transcripts, read what was given. But I think it's very interesting, the parallel in, in how you cite what the Supreme Court does in the shooting case and then what the Supreme Court does in the uh, educational funding case, right? Both critical to HBCUs and in both times, the Supreme Court saying, yeah, racism, white supremacy exists. You are a victim of it. There's not really nothing we can do, right? And you, you think about the, the rippling effect that that has on that entire black community. No, that's right. And we see it it's the problem that we hear not only in, in that part of our government in the Supreme Court, in the judicial branch, but I think it's something we suffer from in the legislative branch as well, where this idea of, well, we need to leave this to the state, we need to leave that to the states, that leads us into some really problematic directions that we do need a sort of federal presence to truly stand up for what justice should look like in this country. And, and for me, that's where the linkage to the COVID-19 crisis, it, it feels more direct than I wish that it did, that we could be living in a, com in a community that's so inequitable, even in 2020, mm -hmm. um, because we haven't acted at the legislative level um, to really make sure um, that states can't run these really inequitable systems. So it's, there is a reason we are a nation as opposed to just a collection of states. Right. And I wish right. that we would enact that more strongly in more cases. And certainly um, the case of, 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 you know, Gibbs et al. Right. Versus the state of Mississippi, I wish it had gone another way and that the Supreme Court would have taken up the case. So one final, a couple of final questions. And again, we thank you so much for your, not just your research, but your time. So, you know, you know, recently the state of Mississippi has voted to remove the Confederate emblem, you know, from its flag. And a, and a lot of people, you know, you know, glad about that. I'm, I'm one of those people that I, I want a little bit more substance than 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 symbolism. But I, I, thinking about the Jackson State shooting and thinking about the trial and thinking about the Ayers case and thinking about all the inequities uh, that continue. Right. So after the removal of the Confederate emblem. Right. Based on your research and based on how you were looking at the present through the lens of the JSU shooting. Talk to us about some things you think the state can do to really be, to really rectify, right, the wrong that happened from the JSU shooting, even earlier than that, to today, and the way that education is funded in Mississippi. Tell you what, the first answer I have is don't ask me. <laughs> ask local African-American leadership 
about this question, because it seems to me what you really want to do is talk to those who have expertise and experience with the exact conditions, the exact situation, the exact crisis that is Mississippi. There are people in your state ready to answer those questions. I'm guessing you're one of them, in fact, Seeley, who should be asked that very question and should be conferred with. Those folks should be in the leadership roles of making the kind of change that your state and my state and my university and your university need to be making. We need to turn to those who are expert, who have the training, the experience, um, to answer the question, which is a very serious one, which is how do we reckon with the racial past, with the mistakes, with the horrors that we have lived with and that we can no longer allow. Um, now that said, I would turn to a couple of other things. One is we have to take on the carceral state. We have to dismantle somehow this prison system. We have to demilitarize the police. Some would argue for complete defunding to complex route, uh, certainly thinking about defunding uh, and putting that funding into the places it belongs like education, mental health, right. drug rehabilitation. That's what we right. need to be doing. We need to redistribute how we're spending our tax dollars. Um, and so taking on both um, the carceral state and the way um, police is funding and the other things that are not funded. Those are things we have to do, it seems to me. Again, that's not just Mississippi that needs to do it, but every state in the union that needs to be taking on those questions. Um, but again, for me, the real answer isn't to ask somebody like me who doesn't know the contemporary situation well. You might ask me to give, you know, fill in on some history, but there are local leaders um, who should be taking charge, who should be asked to take charge and given the authority uh, and the funding um, to do what's right. So I want to leave, I want to make sure that people get a good shot of Steeped in the Blood, right? You can pick it up at any bookstore. So I want us to leave with, tell us something or the one thing that you want readers to get from your text. And I know there are many things, so that may be an unfair question, but you're saying, okay, I do want that, you know, leave with this. What happened at Jackson State College that night of May 14th, 15th, 1970, was born of white supremacy. Uh, and it was an incident of state violence against young people um, that was part of a long history of white violence against black communities of color that has damaged the nation as a whole. And that this is a history that all of us need to know in order to make a better present and really imagine the future that we want to have. I think that's a great point to leave it. Uh, again, my name is Celie McInnes, uh, and we want to thank Dr. Nancy Bristow for her wonderful book and our wonderful talk. And on behalf of the Mississippi Book Festival, we thank you guys for joining us. And please continue to come back for all these wonderful panels that we're having, and you will see the Mississippi Book Festival back in 2021. Dr. Bristow, thank you so much. No, thank you, Celie, and thank you, Mississippi Book Festival. What an honor. Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting.